uh, ties together so perfectly uh, the Lord's table that we're going to receive together and giving in the offering. And so uh, the reason we, we wanted to hold off on it is because the way that I believe the scripture uh, ties those things together. And so uh, hopefully by the time we get to that, uh, you'll understand that and uh, that will be a little bit more meaningful for us. If you've got your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 7, we are in a, a study going through the book of Hebrews. Um, this is part 10 of that. We're only on chapter 7. Uh, I could have probably already have done 20 parts if we really would have taken time to dive into all of the things that are there. Um, but uh, I just kind of picked and choosed as we went through. And, uh, they, you know, some in our day we get bored. If I did a 300-part series, uh, some of you would be like, are we ever going to get out of Hebrews? Um, and so, in order to be true to the whole counsel of God's word, we're not going to spend 300 weeks in the book of Hebrews, even though we could. Uh, we're going to spend, I don't know how many, but uh, we're not going to finish it till about Easter. So, uh, but we will take a break for Christmas because, you know, it's Christmas. Um, the book of Hebrews, as we've talked over and over again about, was written to a group of Jewish believers who were Hebrews, Jewish believers, and uh, they had turned their back on the Jewish old covenant and put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, the new covenant that we now know as the gospel of Jesus Christ, but uh, things didn't go well for them. Um, you know, they obviously heard the prosperity gospel, and if you give your life to Jesus, everything will go great for you, but they were being persecuted. They were being uh, killed. They were losing uh, financial uh, money. They were being robbed and stolen from. They were being uh, tortured and persecuted. Family members were being killed. And uh, all kinds of things were taking place. So this letter was written to them as an encouragement that you haven't been duped. Okay, Jesus is the best way. And from beginning to end, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tries to trace the roots of, of salvation all the way back through the old covenant, all the way back to the prophets and to Moses and to the angels, the beginning of creation. Jesus was the word. He was with God there at the beginning and he sustains all this by his word and, and trying to prove that Jesus is better. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't go back to the old covenant. He's better than Jesus. He's better than the sacrifices. His blood is better than the sacrifices of animals. Don't let what's happening in your life cause you to disbelieve what we told you was true. That's a message you and I need to hear on a regular basis. We cannot let what is happening in our lives, the relationships that seem to be falling apart, the medical diagnosis that doesn't seem to be going right, the things that's, the pressure that seems to be mounting on us, we can't let it cause us to doubt what we know to be true. And as we looked last week, as we ended this passage last week, this hope that God keeps his word and we trace the, the promises of God that he made to, to, to uh, Abraham back in Genesis and we traced it all the way through the history of the nation of Israel and how God prophesied that the nation of Israel would be reborn in a day and how in, in May of 1948, in a day, the nation of Israel was reborn and how they've managed to survive even though they're surrounded by 30 million Arabs that hate them and want to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he's telling them, this is, this is to secure your faith. This hope that God's going to be true to his word. He's going to be faithful to his promise. You can trace it. You can bank on it. He will not fail you. He will not let you down. And this hope is supposed to be an anchor for our soul for our mind, for our will, for our emotions. Because guess what? We get in situations where our thoughts start saying, well, 
I know God's word says this, but my thoughts and my opinion about this situation that I find myself in are different. Well, then let his word be that anchor for your soul. Get your thoughts back there. Don't let your thoughts go off over here and over there. Get your thoughts grounded in the word, the hope, the expectation that we have in what God has promised us. Your emotions, your feelings, your will, all of it should be anchored by the hope that we have in Christ. And that hope, as we talked about last week, is twofold. Meaning that when we pray any of the promises of God, there's that expectation that God is gonna step into this right now moment and bring victory. He's gonna bring deliverance. He's gonna bring healing. It happens. We call on God to heal the sick and he heals the sick instantly. We call on God for restoration or breakthrough and it comes instantly, but it doesn't always come instantly. And so the hope isn't just that it could happen right now. The hope is the certainty that if I do not let go, there will come a day when all of it will come to pass. Amen. And it's certain, it's sure. And that's what you remind yourself of. When it, when it seems like you've prayed and it didn't happen or you've been faithful and it's not going well for you, you come back to this hope and you anchor yourself in it. You don't let your emotions or your feelings or your will or anything else dictate what you're gonna do. You anchor yourself in the hope of his word. And so, let's go back to chapter six, verse 19 and kind of read our way into chapter seven. Because at the end of chapter seven, we're reintroduced to this guy by the name of Melchizedek, and we're gonna talk about him uh, as we go through the day. But I just wanna recap verses uh, 19 and 20 as we end that chapter. And so he says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, for our motion, for our mind, for our will. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. We go into that sanctuary to get mercy and grace. The mercy we need to forgive, to be forgiven, and the grace we need to live out this life, okay? We've talked about that in Hebrews. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's waiting. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This Melchizedek, chapter seven, was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. This is before the law, before the Levites. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are the descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe, tenth, from the rest of the people of Israel, who are the descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. 
Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. Without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collect tithes, tenths, are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the one who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek in the order, instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? If the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is, our Lord never came from our Lord came, excuse me, from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. <clears throat> Father, I pray that as we study your word together today, Holy Spirit, that you would cause it to come alive in our hearts. Help us to have the grace we need to not only hear your word, but to do what it says, to be faithful stewards of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible was written by about 40 different men over a period of 1,600 years. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired them to do it, so we believe that from beginning to end, God was a part of this plan, that God does not, did not make up what he was doing as he went along. <clears throat> from the beginning of time, God knew the end all the way in the beginning. Okay, and so he's been revealing parts of his plan throughout it. And so that's why even though each of these books uh, are able to stand on their own as individuals, you can trace the continuity of them, the way that God has revealed himself to mankind throughout the history of the book. It's a complete book, even though it's independent in its nature. Does that make sense to you? 1,600 years, 40 men, they start revealing to us these things. The Old Testament is a foreshadowing or revealing of what's going to come in the New Testament. The temple, the tabernacle that was made on the earth and all of the intricate details of that tabernacle. You wonder why was God so detailed in telling them how to build certain things and why to set up the tribes in certain ways around uh, the, the, the throne. And you can see pictures of it in the book of Ezekiel when Ezekiel prophesies and speaks of this throne room in heaven. And the copy of that temple in heaven here on earth. So God set up the tabernacle, the temple here on earth, as a copy of what's in heaven. And the, the priests did all of their work bringing the sacrifices of blood of animals into that tabernacle to cover the people's sins. But Jesus took his blood when he died and he took it into the temple of heaven and he offered it once and for all on the, the, the mercy seat of God in heaven so that there no longer needs to be sacrifice for our sins. That's the new covenant. That's, that's so awesome. And as, as, we were, as I was preparing this series, that's what we're going to talk about next. And I'm like, we should take communion with that because that's perfect. 
But as I began to study out this mystery of Melchizedek, which I was excited for this one because I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. But as I began to study it, I thought, no, I think communion is going to fit better right here. In the Old Testament, there are mysteries, there are things that have been hidden in the word of God for us as believers. And it's referenced to us many times in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about some of these mysteries. He says, I, I, I am among, yet when I'm among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. The wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. Don't get nervous, but there are mysteries hidden in the scriptures for us to uncover through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mysteries like this guy Melchizedek that the writer of Hebrews points back to and draws attention to as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's only repeating what David did in Psalm 110. What gives them the right, what gives David the right to say that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, except he called him the Messiah because he didn't have a name. And what gives the, the writer of Hebrews the right to point back to this guy Melchizedek and say, hey, that's Jesus. That's the order, the priesthood that Jesus comes from. If I got up to you today and none of that had been written in scripture, if Psalm 110 wasn't in this book and Hebrews chapter seven wasn't in this book and I started to preach to you a sermon that said, hey, Jesus is like this guy Melchizedek back in Genesis chapter 14, some of you would stop coming to church here and label me a heretic. But yet the New Testament writers do it often. Now, please don't get your hair pinned up too tight right now because any mystery revealed to us by the spirit absolutely cannot contradict the plain and simple revealed word of God to us and so I don't care if you feel like the Holy Spirit has taken you into the 12th heaven and revealed to you something if it contradicts something that has already clearly been given to us by God that's in black and white or red and white in this book it's not the Holy Spirit so just because you claim a mystery doesn't make it true. But just because some people out there claim weird mysteries shouldn't keep us from understanding there are things that God wants to reveal to us through some of these obscure moments in the Old Testament. Why does he do it? Because he wants to show us he's been in this from the beginning. He wants to prove to us that he can be trusted in the here and now because if thousands of years ago he could do this in the life of Abraham, and make application for it in us today, that God can be trusted with our situation that really isn't as long as we thought it was. I mean, how long are our problems? I mean, if you have a problem from the day you're born till the day you die, maybe 90 years? I mean, God's up to that task. If he's been this faithful and this consistent since the world began, we can trust him. And so he begins to make application about what this idea, what this guy Melchizedek is about to do or what he's about. And he's quoting from Psalm 110. He's quoting from David. Remember, he's reminding them that the new covenant is better. The blood of Jesus is better than the old sacrifices. And Jesus doesn't come through the, the tribe of Levi the way the Old Testament prescribed it. He comes in the order of Melchizedek. This guy way back in the Old Testament that we don't know where he came from. All of a sudden, there he is. Woo, every time I turn around, there you are. Melchizedek, who are you? He's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace and the king of justice. 
Sounds a whole lot like Jesus. He comes out after Abraham's on his way back from a battle, and you know what he gives to Abraham? Bread and wine. That's interesting. What a coinkydink. That the new covenant established all those years later just happened to be bread and wine. What does Abraham do in response? After he, this unknown priest blesses him. What do you, I mean, look what he says. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. But who are you, dude? God's already promised and prophesied over me and his word's gonna come to pass. I don't know you from Adam. And yet this, this obscure story ends up here in Hebrews chapter seven and has so many striking coincidences for us. He's not saying that Jesus descended from the line of Melchizedek. We don't know where Melchizedek came from. Some scholars actually believe Melchizedek was Jesus. There are times in the Old Testament where Jesus appears, the angel of the Lord that appeared to Joshua. If you look at the way the word Lord is written, it's in capitals if you have a King James Version of the Bible or some other translations because that angel of the Lord doesn't mean an angel like Gabriel or Michael. It means Jesus. The, Mas- the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua. And some people think Melchizedek was that. Whether he was or wasn't, doesn't really matter. We don't know who he was from. We don't know where he was born. We don't know anything about his parents. We don't know when he was born, when he died. We don't even know where Salem was. Interesting. And out of nowhere, here comes this priest. And the funny thing is, is Abraham gives him a tithe. When I started preparing for the mystery of Melchizedek, do you know what I did not think I would be preaching on? tithing do you know that in 14 verses the word tithe tenth same word interchangeable appears seven times seven times in 14 verses that makes it somewhat significant when you're studying the bible you look for repeated words you find out why they're there And this word tithe continues to be repeated and i'm not going to tell you that this passage commands believers in the New Testament to tithe. But I believe it teaches us a lot of stuff about the tithe. And verse eight of this passage, as we're gonna look at later, tells us that this priest who lives forever in the order of Melchizedek still collects tithes. It's interesting. See, when Abraham, before the law was made, has this encounter with this guy Melchizedek, I've often wondered, why did he give him a tenth? Did you ever wonder that? I mean, there's no law yet. So either God had already revealed it to Abraham that that's the way that God wants it done, and so he did it, or Abraham copied the customs of other religions of the day, and that's what they did, and he did it, or Abraham just thought, eh, 10% a pretty good thing to to do here, so I'm going to do this. Whatever the reason, he picked 10%. Oddly, a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 8 or 28, his son Jacob, well, his son's son, his grandson Jacob, prays to the Lord and says, Lord, if you go with me and you provide for me and you help me, I'll give you a tenth of everything I get, every increase. 
Why is Jacob doing that? And then along comes the law. And see, what we have here is Abraham, who for some reason is giving a tithe to an unknown priest uh, as an act of worship. I mean, he's not doing it because he's overwhelmed with emotion and decides, oh, let me give this tithe. He's doing it as an act of worship to God. He's not doing it because he likes this guy. He's doing it as an act of worship unto the God most high. We know that because if Jacob is doing it, we know that it has to have been in the heart of Abraham. Now, before we go any further, let me explain to you, worship does not mean uh, an emotional response. Because when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, that I promised you, and I want you to take him on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. The Bible says when he gets up in the morning, he went to the mountain of the Lord to worship. Worship. Excuse me, he went to kill his son. See, worship and and obedience are interchangeable in the scripture. We think worship is a couple slow songs, and if they're not songs we like, then we can't worship. Well, if that's our definition of worship, let's shut this thing down and walk away. Worship is obedience. Worship is giving everything to him. Worship is recognizing he's my all in all. And I don't even need to know the words of the song. I've been in other countries and I've had to worship when they're singing in a language I don't even know. Really difficult to do until you start to do it. And then you just get lost in him and the words no longer are significant. So Abraham becomes this tither, first tither in the Bible. And then along comes the law. And the law says that you have to tithe. It's law. You got to do it. And I'm, I'm wondering if God had revealed to Abraham the tithe or if God made the law because of what Abraham did. You ever wonder that one? I mean, did God say, hey, Abraham's my friend. This tithe thing, man, that's such a good idea. I'm going to take it and use it. I don't know. Either way, God either revealed it to Abraham and then makes it law or he takes what Abraham did and makes it law. I don't know. But he establishes it as a law. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus comes and he makes it so that the law is fulfilled. And that means that we're no longer saved by keeping the law. I mean, we never could be saved by keeping the law because we can't keep the law. I mean, it's, the law was given to show us that we can, can't keep it and the futility of it. But Jesus came and he satisfied the law for us. But that doesn't mean we ignore the law from this day forward. And some of us like to pick and choose and say, well, you know, some of the things like, you know, having garments made of two types of things or eating shellfish, those laws, you know, they don't matter anymore today. And tithing is one of those. But do not kill, well, that's one we're going to keep. Let's make sure that tithing is one that we're really supposed to throw away. Let's make sure that when the writer of Hebrews says it seven times in 14 verses, he's not alluding to something that you and I need to pay attention to. In the time when Abraham lived as a friend of God and worshiped the Lord, he, in his actions, worshiped God in a way that many of us don't understand, especially those of us that were raised in church. Because those of us that were raised in church were raised to believe that this is what you do as a Christian, so you gotta do it. We weren't raised to be friends of God 
who now act out of that friendship, that relationship with God as his children and do things as his children. We do them because if we don't, God will be angry with us. We treat him like an abusive father. We have a misunderstanding of it altogether. Abraham does not do what he's done because he's afraid of God. He does what he does because he's worshiping and honoring God. His actions are a lifestyle of obedience because he's a friend of God. When God says, I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm going to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because he's my friend, God allows Abraham to look at him and say, God, would you, would you destroy the city for, for if, if 45 righteous could be, or 50 would be found? Would you destroy the sinners and the righteous together? And God says, no, no, I wouldn't do it. It's almost as if God looks like he's changing his mind. <clears throat> Abraham's having this conversation. He's interceding for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want him to be destroyed, God. He gets him all the way down to 10. How about 45, God? How about 30, God? God, surely you wouldn't destroy this, the entire city if there were 10 righteous found. I mean, that takes some guts. Does that sound like a guy that's afraid of God cowering in a corner? No, it sounds like a guy that's saying, God, I want to intercede for these people. You don't destroy them. I mean, there's, surely there's 10 righteous. They couldn't even find 10 righteous in the city. See, God tells us <clears throat> through Jesus, I no longer call you slaves because the master doesn't confide in his slaves. You are my friends. God wants to confide in us. He wants this relationship not to be, well, dad told me so, so I got to do it. He wants it to be one where we want to do it because we're his children and we want to honor him. We want to come back to the order of Melchizedek where we're not, we're not doing what we were told to do by the law. We're doing the same way that Abraham lived and the same way that Abraham was willing to take his most precious possession and kill it on the top of a mountain. We want to live in that type of relationship. So we don't want to soften the law and just do whatever we want to do and live however we want to live. We want to honor the Lord. We want to be his friends. But at the same time, we don't want to do it just because we're told to do it. How many of you remember a time when we used to dress up to go to church? Remember? Stan, you, you remember it because you did it today. And Velmer. Jean, a little more relaxed, got, you don't have the tie on. Why did we dress up to go to church? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I grew up in church and we always wore Sunday best. In fact, we don't even hear the word Sunday best much anymore. I used it just this last week because I went to the, uh, the James Valley Fall Banquet dressed somewhat like this and my wife was wearing, um, she wasn't wearing jeans because teachers aren't allowed to wear jeans. Uh, to events like that, and so she was wearing other pants. She's like, well, you get to wear jeans. And I said, hey, they said wear your Sunday best. So here I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Do you know why I'm guessing the generation before me dressed up to go to church? Out of honor and respect for God. They just wanted to respect him. But do you know why I was told to do it growing up? Because we have to give God our best. I mean, it wasn't presented to me, Tom, you, as you grow up, man, learn to fall in love with the Lord. And out of that love relationship with him, I desired to dress up 
And when I came to a, a building to meet him and worship him, and you know, I'm not saying we need to go back to that, but the motivation for dressing up was out of worship. But then it became out of law. And you know what I saw growing up? If people came in our church wearing a hat, man, the, the fear of God was all over people. How dare you come into the Lord's house wearing that hat? Well, I'm, I'm betting they're going to get saved today. And so all of a sudden, it became law. We're not under law. Why did we used to go to church every time the doors were open? Because that's what good Christians do. No, I'm assuming people were so passionate in love with God, and they were in fellowship with each other, that they wanted to be together. Sort of like the book of Acts, where it says they met together daily in the temple, and they met together daily in each other's homes. It was out of worship. It wasn't out of law. But then, as I was young, it was, this is what we do. Every time the doors are open, we're there. It's law. Why do I say all of that? Because here's what happens. When it becomes law, do you know what we do? We rebel against the system. Because we recognize it's not law. It's not law to dress up, so I'm going to wear whatever I want to wear. It's not law to have to go to church. I'm not saved because I go to church every time the doors are open. And so we rebel against it. And in the process, sometimes we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Look at what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Let's not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing, uh, drawing near. That actually says, in, there's a word in the new living that's left out. Let us meet together all the more as the day of his return draws closer. All the more. Meet together all the more. And you know what our society is doing right now? Meeting together all the less. Churches used to meet Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And now we live where many of them still meet Sunday morning, Wednesday night. But a lot of our churches are saying, you know, our people are just so busy. We, we just meet on Sunday. That's all we got time for. I'm not going to tell you it's sin, wrong, but let's make sure we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe we're so busy that we can't obey the scripture, but maybe it's not the scripture's problem. Maybe it's the way we've ordered our lives. Does that make sense? I think God's plan to fund his body is revealed through Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. The New Testament seems pretty silent on this idea of tithing. But Jesus speaks of the Pharisees giving credence to the tithe so much that they tithed even their tiniest income from their herb gardens, and yet they ignored more important aspects of the law. You know, here's the thing. I used to grow up, uh, I, I was raised that you had to tithe, okay? You had to. It was just law. Just like I was raised that you had to be there every time the doors were open and all these other things. And I'm sure that tithe was out of obedience in one generation but then it became law to me and the fear of God came all over me where there if there were times where I got like 10 bucks for my birthday and uh, after I spent it all I was like oh my goodness I did not give a dollar I'm I'm serious I am serious I was like afraid that God was going to strike me because I forgot to give a dollar and then the scripture this is literally what I was taught when you steal from the Lord <laughs> you got to give back twofold so now you owe him $2. 
And that's what I did. This is how I lived. And you, there's so much bondage in this. Oh my goodness, every time I get a cent, I gotta make sure. In fact, we had an evangelist here one time. Pardon me, I gotta go do my weekly duty over here. This thing is just distracting. <clears throat> You're welcome. Got you covered again. Um, where was I? Oh, we had an evangelist here that got a new suit. And he had the suit appraised. It was a gift so that he could tithe off of it. I'm like, you know... We can go too far, but we've got to understand, I believe the tithe was instituted back before the law with Abraham in the order of Melchizedek for a reason. I don't think it's just law because Jesus says you should tithe. Yes, you should. There's a purpose in it. There's a reason for it, but you shouldn't neglect even the most important things. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, a group of Jews in 1 Corinthians chapter six and says, give in proportion to your income. If you and I are a good group of Jews and someone says to us, give in proportion to your income, what's the first thing coming to our mind? 10%. That's the first, if you're a good studied Jew and someone, you don't have to say tithe, give in proportion to your income. In Hebrews chapter seven, the verse we read from the Amplified, furthermore, here in the Levitical priesthood, tithes are received by men who are subject to death. But in the case, in that case concerning Melchizedek, they are received by one of whom it is testified that he lives on perpetually. It's almost as if this order of Melchizedek being reinstituted teaches us that this is still God's worship, God's design, God's plan to to care for his body today. If you look at the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, look at this. I can testify that these people gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. They begged us. I mean, some of you up here today, you were begging me to give. Come on, Pastor, put the baskets out. Praise God. I actually had to wrestle them away from Kathy. Don't put them out. But this is, what, this is what grace does in our lives. If we're walking in an intimate relationship with God, 10% ought to be the, the beginning. These people were selling possessions. When is the last time you or I found out someone lost their job or they had a medical bill they couldn't pay and we sold something? Not some piece of junk we had. We sold our iPad. We sold our computer. We sold our television set so that we could help them. And here we are arguing about whether or not we should even give 10%. I think we're failing to miss the grace of God. But pastor, I don't know if I'm going to have enough. Then you're trusting in your money and not your God. I've never doubted if we've had enough. More in my life, there have been times, I'm not going to say I've never been tempted, but whenever that tithe check comes to be written, it's on the gross and I round up. Because I'm not shortchanging the Lord. And I don't do it anymore out of fear. I do it because he's given me so much. And if you don't think he's given you so much, please turn on the news. Please start Googling some third world countries and look at how the majority of our world lives today. We are so blessed. And so we offer him this tithe. Because in the New Testament, there are scriptures that tell us why, what the church, the body of Christ, us as this group, what should we do? If a woman is a believer, has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. 
then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. The government isn't supposed to take care of orphans and widows. The church is. And you know what we've done is we've established parachurch ministries. Ministries completely separated from the church. I mean, they have Christians that work at them that help orphans and help widows. This isn't how it was supposed to be. I mean, it's great that even in our own community, we've got Royal Family Kids and we've got the Plus One Guidance Center and we've got uh, Operation Christmas Child and we're doing all these things, but it ought to flow out of the local church. We shouldn't even need to take special offerings for it. It should be able to be funded through the tithes of God's people. There's not a church on this planet today where every person who attends that body gives a tenth of their income regularly. Whether they're there or not, they do it. And if they did, I would see a lot less special offerings. There's more than enough resource to do what we need, what God has called us to do. Now, can God miraculously supply a check from heaven? Yeah, I've seen him do it over the years. I've seen him answer our prayers in response to a need that we had as a body and uh, God came through, but God does not want to come through that way. He wants to come through us. God doesn't want to just supernaturally intervene. He doesn't want to provide manna. He wants to do it in the land of promise. He wants us to learn to grow our crops, but not forget he's the one that grows them. He wants us to bring in the tithe, not because the New Testament says, thou shalt tithe, but because our, we understand it. We understand God has called us not to just come sit in a pew every Sunday because you like the preacher, not to come sit in a pew every Sunday because this is the church you grew up in, not to come and sit in a pew on Sunday and think you've done your diligence to him. He's called you to connect to a body, to share responsibility with that body through giving of your tithe, through serving with your giftings through ministering one to another. When we show up here on Sunday morning, the first thing in our minds should be to honor the Lord and the second thing should be, God, do you want me to minister to someone today? Is there someone here that needs prayer? Is there someone here that needs a word of encouragement? Could I slip out of my pew while we're singing these songs of worship and just go put a hand on their shoulder and say, I'm with you, I'm praying for you. I don't know what's going on right now, but I just, the Lord puts you in my heart and I just wanna come and encourage you right now. Wow. Wouldn't that be exciting? And you know what? It, didn't, it wouldn't even matter what songs were being sung. It wouldn't matter what the yo-yo up here was preaching or not preaching that day, whether they had videos or no videos. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. Why do we tithe? Because it's a New Testament law? No, because we gotta take care of the needs. This goes on to say that the elders who do their work should be paid this is a hard thing to preach because it looks like it's pretty self-serving. But here's the thing. I don't set my own salary. I don't decide how much of the tithes to take home this week. We have a board of deacons that works their magic with the money that comes in and prays over it and prays we have enough. And sometimes they take steps of faith. And in response to that, God provides through his people. And that's been his plan all along. Romans chapter 12, verses three through nine, and then 1 Peter chapter four, talk to us about using our gifts to serve the body of Christ, coming together to minister one to another. 
You know, we're not to pick a body because it's the one that makes us the most comfortable. We're not to pick a body because it's the music we like best or the sermons we like best or a couple of our close friends are there. We're not to attach ourselves to a body for selfish reasons. If God's led us into a body, we need to be connected to the body of Christ. This is a New Testament concept. And the body is healthy and growing and full of love as the pastor does his job well. That's not what it says, is it? It's healthy and growing and full of love as the deacons get their act in order. No, it doesn't say that either, does it? It says the body is healthy and growing and full of love as each part does its work. And I know that sometimes it's like, well, Pastor Tom, I can't, I can't do my work and I can't take care of myself and take care of the church and there's too much. If God commanded it, there's a possible way. It's possible. Can it go to an extreme where you get so burned out that you stop caring for your family and you stop taking care of your, absolutely. Don't go there. But please, in reaction to that, don't go over there. Because there's a movement in our day that says, you know, hey, we're done with church. Church is so flawed, church is so, can I show you that church actually is in this book? And if it's flawed, then you've been called to come alongside it and help it grow. Well, you know, pastor, I would do that, but I don't want to get messed up in church politics. Could you show me where God says, please don't do that because you don't want to get messed up in church politics? He says, if you have a gift of leadership, then lead. If you have a gift of teaching, teach. If you have a gift of serving, serve. Every one of you in this room have a gift. Where are you using it to build up the body? Because here's the thing, what you think you need from God and what you want from God is gonna come through the body taking care of one another. As soon as God does this for me, I'll do this. As soon as God gets my income up to a certain level, I'll tithe. Stop lying to yourself, you won't. Well, Pastor Tom, you haven't seen my my bills. There's no way I can tithe. Well, what part of your salvation are you capable of doing? God doesn't call you to be obedient through your capability. He just calls you to trust him. Well, Pastor Tom, if I give, I don't know what I'll do. Trust him. Cut out all of those needs in your life, like cable and internet and cell phones. Try tithing. And here's the thing. If you are living on the bare minimum and you try tithing in response to a step of faith and you have a bill that comes due and you can't pay it, bring it to me and the church will pay it. But make sure you're living on the bare minimum. Make sure you're not living the American lifestyle and saying, I can't afford to tithe. If you're truly wanting to set your heart on God and say, God, I'm gonna give this to you because I wanna honor you, I'll help you honor him. Because that's how convinced I am God will come through. And if he doesn't come through for you and you take my word for it, then I'll put my word on it. And his word's way better than mine. I'll at least do what I can. We'll find a way to make that happen. But this is what the New Testament says. Well, how does this relate to communion? Well, I'm glad you asked. We talked about last time we took communion, last month, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And for those of you that are nervous, I know it's 10 till and I'm landing the plane. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul is talking to the Corinthian church that had all these problems, he comes to this idea of the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says to you. Says to them, 
For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry and others get drunk. Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking or do you want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? I certainly will not praise you for this. And then he goes on to give instruction about the Lord's Supper that he received from the Lord and then he concludes with this. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now I was raised that if to drink it unworthily meant you drank it and ate it with sin in your life. So you gotta check, make sure you don't have any sin in your life. Wow, at least unrepentant sin because I mean, who would take communion? That's not what he's talking about. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. What's he talking about? The fact that this guy's eating and he doesn't care if somebody else eats. See, we're not having a a meal today, but I came to church today to get my fix. I came to church today because I wanted to sing my songs. I came to church today because I wanted to, it's not that I don't care about anyone. It's not that I hate other people. I just don't care. Or I'm so needy that I don't have, I can't look outside myself. Both of those are lies from the enemy. And here's the thing. If we come to this table, we have to recognize we've been called into the body of Christ to take responsibility for one another, to encourage one another, to help one another. Now when I attend church services, it's not just for what I can get, it's for what I, what I need to give. I have a responsibility in proportion to my income to support this body of Christ so that we can pay our pastors, so we can pay our bills, so we can take care of the people that are needy, so we can reach out into this community. I have a responsibility to use the giftings that God has given to me. You say, well, Pastor Tom, I don't know if I want to do all that. Well, here's the thing. I'm not going to force you. I can't force you. The New Testament won't allow me to force you because we're not under law. But here's what I'll do. I'll pray that you have such an encounter with God that it helps us to recognize that the horizontal relationship is just as important as the vertical. Just as important as the vertical. So as we come to take communion today, we're gonna give our offering. I mean, Melchizedek gave Abraham bread and wine, and Abraham gave him a tenth. Jesus gave us everything, and we remember that today. But as we remember today, we want to honor his body, and we're going to say amen to that by giving in this offering. I want to challenge you, if you're not a tither, I'm going to challenge you to take a step of faith and begin to tithe. And not just tithe when you're in church, but tithe every time you get increase. The Lord, the only time in Scripture he says to test him, the only time. In fact, he even says, don't test me. The only time he tells us to test him is in response to tithing. Why? Because money is about me. If I do this, will I have enough for me? Will I be able to eat? Will I be able to do this? So do we trust him or do we trust our money? 
So I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. They're going to lead us in song. I promise you we're not going to draw this out. What we're going to do is we're going to have the communion elements here in the front. And uh, as you come to receive the elements, we're going to just ask that you give your offering, receive the elements, and then make your way back to your seat. And uh, if you can't make it to the front for some reason, uh, we've got a floater that's going to come around and make sure that you are served the elements. And if you've got offering you want to give them so they can bring it and put it in for you, uh, we'd be happy to do that for you as well. But we're going to do... Uh, We're going to do communion. We're going to come around the Lord's table and we're going to say amen to the words that God has spoken to us today. And so as the worship team leads us, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. They're going to lead us in a simple song. And uh, as they do, go ahead and come, receive the elements, bring your offering, and uh, we'll take the elements together once everyone's received. He became sin who did no sin
depending on the type of church you were raised in, this time when we come around the Lord's table can be a solemn, quiet, very serious moment, and it should. We should never take lightly the blood that Jesus sacrificed for us, but I don't know that Jesus intended us to come to this table with our heads bowed in shame, knowing we're so unworthy. He did, in fact, Paul says, every time you do this, you're proclaiming his death. You're proclaiming, he willingly came to this earth to to make a way for us to walk in new life. He didn't do it so you could pay him back. You can't pay him back. So no amount of feeling guilty or shameful is gonna pay him back. We've gotta understand that he did this for us. He did this while we were his enemies. He, He treated us not as our sins deserved, but in response to the love of the Father. And to truly have received that, the test of it is how we do for one another. And that's why Paul's so serious when he says, you need to examine yourself. If you're mistreating the body of Christ, if you're, you're, you don't care about what's going on with your brothers and sisters in Christ, examine your heart because you haven't really understood the grace that Jesus made available to you. And he says, he doesn't say you mean wicked, evil people that you're doing this on purpose. Maybe they just don't know it. Maybe they just failed to recognize it. But he's pretty strong in these words for them. I have no praise for you at all in this. So he calls on us to correct it. And that's what we wanna do today. And so Father, as we stand here at this table, Jesus, as we take this moment to remember the sacrifice that you made for us, God, what what a crazy sacrifice that you, our creator, who knew no sin, would come to this earth and be abused and beaten and bloodied and crucified for us. While we were your enemies, while we wanted nothing to do with you, when we weren't even looking for you or reaching out to you. And yet you you do this over and over again. Your blood continues to speak to men all over the world today. You're no longer counting our sins against us, but you're holding out to us life and hope calling on us to follow you the same way you've called on us, called on your disciples to follow you, to put our faith and trust in you. And in this moment, God, we recognize that we've fallen short. We've not always remembered to honor your body, to recognize the body of Christ that you've called us into. And so in those times that we have failed, in those times that just in our apathy or our ignorance, even in those times of just the sorrow of our own lives when we didn't think we even had the strength to look beyond our own situation. God, forgive us. Forgive us for our neglect. Forgive us for not sharing in the responsibility, not doing our part. Forgive us for coming into a worship service and not being ready to just encourage our brother and sister to pray for someone, to share a word with them, Forgive us for not being faithful in our giving. Forgive us for not being faithful stewards of the gifts that you've put in our lives. We've stopped serving because of hurts and because of pain or because uh, we're afraid. Father, I pray today that you release this body. God, that we would not go back under law, 
God, that we would not go under guilt and condemnation, that if we don't do these things, we're not good Christians. But God, that you would so release your grace into our lives as we partake of these elements today. God, that just like Abraham, our giving, our obeying, our serving, our ministry, everything just flows out of our worship of you and not out of law. So we ask your blessing on these elements. We ask your blessing on our lives. We ask for your grace to recognize and honor your body here on this earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's partake of the elements together. If you're here this morning, in just a moment, I'm just going to say a short prayer blessing over this body. But if the Lord has spoken to you and you need to make something right, you need to confess something before him, maybe you need to go to someone else in the room and make something right. I want to encourage you to take a moment, whether at this altar or at your seat, to do that. Don't leave here today before you've dealt with whatever the Holy Spirit is putting in your heart to deal with. And when you've done that, please just dismiss quietly so that this can be a place of prayer for those that want to pray. And so, Father, I pray your blessing over these people today, over your body. God, that you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would cause your face to shine on them. God, that you would be gracious to them and that you'd give them peace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.